This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the Deep Dives podcast here on the No Ceilings NBA podcast network. Today is going to be the first NBA Deep Dives episode of the podcast on the new feed. And I am so excited to bring on my No Ceilings colleague for the first of our rookie rank discussions. So I'm here today with Nathan Grubel. Nathan, how are you doing today? I am incredibly thrilled to let you keep your namesake in a way, this once was the NBA Deep Dives podcast, so it's only right that we figure out a way to mesh what we do in those ceilings with everything that you were used to doing for quite a while on your own NBA Deep Dives podcast. I think the audience is going to love this one today. I think you and I are going to appreciate having these conversations today about the rookies because, man, who actually thought that this rookie class was going to be bad, right? I mean, come on. <laughs> No, in, in, in fairness, I think a lot of evaluators thought that last year was going to be a little bit of a quote-unquote down year, yet we actually get to the real NBA action happening before our eyes, and I have a top 10 in my rookie rank. I have a few honorable mention names that we'll, we'll toss in at the end. We won't really go too deep on them. We'll toss them in at the end, but any of those guys could also be featured by the next time we, we do a rookie rank podcast, so really a pool of 15 to 20 to even beyond that rookies who are contributing at a good enough level in the NBA to see real rotation minutes. That to me, that's saying we have a much better draft class. I think the people anticipated off the bat. So you already touched on a few of these things, but just a few quick housekeeping notes up front. So today we are going to be going through Nathan's most recent rookie rank piece, which if you're listening to this podcast the moment it drops, either because you're an international listener or because you're a sicko who's up at 4 a.m. to listen to draft podcasts, it will come out slightly before Nathan's rookie rank article on No Ceilings NBA. So check that out on NoCeilingsNBA.com if you're not one of those sickos. If you are, welcome. You're very much welcome here on this podcast feed. And we are going to start out our rookie rank discussion with two deep dives and we will be doing two deep dives throughout every edition of the podcast this season. And the first two deep dives that we're going to do are the first two players on the rookie rank for this edition. And I think everybody listening to this podcast will be shocked to hear that the number one player <laughs> on the first edition of the rookie rank is Paula Boncaro of the Orlando magic. So Nathan, why don't you kick off our deep dive here I don't think it'll be too hard to justify why you have Paulo Boncaro as number one on the first edition of the rookie rank, but go for it anyway. What convinced you to put Paulo at the top of the first rookie rank? It's not hard. And I know that you and I are going to dissect certain parts of his game and what he's been able to do over the course of his rookie season. But honestly, Nick, if I just read you his numbers, his averages, you'll give me that look like, okay, I can see why he's number one on the rookie rank. So he's played in 11 games. He's starting all 11 of those games. He's been out. For the past few games with an injury, I believe he's going to be coming back relatively soon. But again, 11 games, 11 starts, 35 minutes a night. That's an incredibly heavy role for any rookie to be playing. And he's averaging 23.5 points per game, 8.3 rebounds, 3.6 assists, shooting 46% from the field, a 19.3 player efficiency rating, which by the way is high. For a rookie, the majority of rookies usually sit in that 9 to 12 to 13 PER range, slightly below average. League average is about that 15 PER. So a 19.3 rating, 55.6 true shooting percentage. So we're talking about incredible production for a rookie forward that's matching the role that he's being asked to play for the Orlando Magic, who have been one of the feistier teams in the Eastern Conference. 
So it's interesting with Paulo because you rattled off those offensive numbers, which are extraordinarily impressive. The thing that's funniest to me about that is he's been pretty inefficient with his jump shots, especially from long range. Oh, we're going to talk about that. Oh, yes, we are. But, you know, even still, even with that, you know, quote unquote hole in his game, I mean, he put up, I think it was 20 points in his first nine games, which only Wilt Chamberlain had done. Anytime you can start a sentence with only Wilt Chamberlain has done this, you know you're doing something good on the basketball court. He's been less than 20 points in only two of his 11 games so far as a rookie. That's stupid. It's it's absurd. And, you know, it's it's funny that, you know, even with that absolutely absurd start, you know, I started off with an area where he could be doing better. And, you know, you can get into his shooting right now. But that's the thing that's, you know, funniest to me about this is that even with him shooting sub 30% from deep, first of all, he's willing to take those shots, which, as we talk about all the time here on the No Ceilings NBA feed and on the Deep Dives feed in particular, you know, being willing to take those shots is a huge part of it just because defenses have to pay attention to you when you're out there from long range if you're willing to take those shots. You know, the example that I frequently use is Rajon Rondo's season for the Kings. He shot 37% on three-pointers. He shot two of them a game, and basically every single one of them was completely wide open and uncovered, right? So (laughs) you're not really helping your offense out all that much if you'll occasionally hit a three-pointer when defenses completely abandon you to focus on the other four guys on the court. And with Paulo, you know, just his willingness to take those shots from long range really opens up first his incredible playmaking game, but also, you know, the rest of his offensive game, his ability to, you know, if defenses try and close out to him on the three-point line, he can dribble drive past them better than pretty much any big man yep. in the NBA already, which is astounding for a rookie. No, that, and and that's really, that's the crux of where we want Paolo Bencaro to be, at least where I want him to be as an NBA player. And Nick, we, we talked a bunch during draft season last year about does Paolo Bencaro need to shoot the three ball at a certain clip to be one of the best versions of himself as an NBA player, which to an extent... The answer would be yes, but I don't want him to fall in love with that shot to where he becomes this three-point gunner to where the inefficiency is really hurting him, right? You want him to be enough of a threat to bring the defense and pull the defense out so that can set up every other part of his game inside the arc, some of which you already talked about. So yes, he only rates in the 11th percentile on all jump shots. Yes, he only rates in the 10th percentile on catch-and-shoot shots per synergy, But to me, that's such a small portion of what I want his game to be right now. The more important thing that you outline is the comfort level taking those shots. And if you go and watch any of his highlights on YouTube or you go on NBA.com to pull up some of his highlights, Nick, you're seeing his best performances are laced with those patented mid-range dribble pull-up jumpers that he's using around the free throw line, around the elbow areas. A lot of what we saw at the college level and the threat of even those shots inside the arc is pulling so much of the defensive gravity towards him to where he's able to take advantage of what was arguably his most dangerous skill when he got it going in the second half of last year at Duke, which is his passing ability and really his ability to set up everybody else around him. So yes, it's something that needs to improve, but I think you and I both agree that it's not the most important ingredient to his game And there's plenty of other things he does at a positive level on the court to mitigate that. I think that's an excellent way of putting it, that you don't want him to become a gunner. You know, there's a balance that needs to be struck for him between, okay, I need to at least be respected when I'm, you know, taking a three-pointer or when I'm pulling up from 18 feet. But, you know, especially going back to what we saw from Paulo in Summer League, I'm not worried about the mid-range game at all. I mean, You know, granted, the stats on jump shots have not exactly been pretty anywhere for him so far this season. But, you know, I fully expect that, you know, by the time we get to the end of the season, you know, he's going to be, you know, I don't think elite as a mid-range scorer. But, you know, I would hope for him to be in the 40-ish percent from mid-range by the end of the season. And I would be much more ready to sort of accept that outcome then I think it's much more unlikely that he climbs into the mid-30s three-point percentage-wise. But, I mean... You know, his three-point game might need a little bit of work, but I'm not worried at all about his game inside the arc. And his ability to score in the mid-range is a huge part of what opens up the rest of his game, as you mentioned, in terms of his playmaking and in terms of his ability to drive to the rack and score there. Absolutely. And when when you just look at where he's rated in isolation, he's in the 71st percentile. For everybody out there listening, when when I throw out 
some of these synergy percentiles, it's not as common for a rookie to be anywhere from like the 40th percentile and up. Usually it's very common to see rookies struggle in a lot of those areas. So if he's in a, a 70 or above percentile in any category, I'm not necessarily knocking rookies to be low in certain categories, but when they are high in some of them, I'm very quick to stand up and praise some of these guys. And that isolation rating, that's exactly what we're talking about. Even if he's not as efficient on some of these jump shots, he is finding other ways when they get somebody on an island, he's either getting around them, he's playing bully ball, he's ending up backing them down in the post, converting over to another play type, which by the way is in the 93rd percentile on post-ups. He's run pick and roll offense pretty well for somebody his size. I know you want to get into that with some of the playmaking as well, but you don't really find him at a loss offensively, which is the most important thing. And all of the notes that I've written down in games, Nick, when I've watched Paolo, they all come back to the same thing, that he really is like an offensive engine for this team. And we talked about some of the top picks last year with Paolo being the one where I could sit here and say, if this works out, if the best case scenario happens for Paolo in his development, he can be that one out of him, Chet, and Jabari to really be a number one offensive option for an NBA team, regardless of where they're falling in the standings. And honestly, I don't think some people realize how hard that actually is for a player his age to be doing what he's doing. So that's the most important thing to me. So as you mentioned in the article, we are here to talk positively about these rookies. So Absolutely. I do, of course... I do, of course, want to immediately contradict myself by circling back to the biggest negative with Paulo before we wrap up with some of the, you know, going back to some of the more positive stuff. Defense has not exactly been his strong suit. And, you know, at Summer League, I certainly thought that there were some moments where he was really solid on defense. You know, in particular, he had a couple of possessions where he really, you know, locked Keegan Murray down in Summer League. But the flip side of that is... The effort wasn't always there in Summer League. The effort hasn't always been there at the NBA level. But, you know, and this is something that really circles back to why he's as spectacular of a playmaker as he is. Paulo Bobcaro is a gigantic human being. I mean, he's just <laughs> 6'10", 250 pounds. But, you know, just seeing him out there on the court, it felt more like he was seven foot, 300 pounds and entirely made of muscle. You know, he's just a mammoth human being. And that, I think, gives me more hope for his defensive future, just how big he is, how good he is in terms of lateral movement. You know, he has the physical tools to be an exceptional defensive piece as I think probably more of a power forward type, even if he's going to be, you know, sort of somewhere between point guard and power forward type on the offensive end. But I don't know. I mean, the tools are there and every once in a while he shows it, but the defensive inattentiveness is something that really all players who are primary offensive engines struggle with to some extent and pretty much all rookies struggle with defense to some extent. So in the longer term, I'm not worried, but in the shorter term, I think it is at least worth mentioning before we circle back to some of the more positive parts of his game. And before we do that, I, I will, I will take some time. Nick, I just want to read the paragraph that I wrote about him defensively in my piece for the audience. I, I think it sums up everything pretty well. I wrote defensively, Ben Carroll rates out as below average by the eye test though. I do think he's held his own in a number of areas playing on the ball. It's tough for smaller wings to take him off the bounce around the basket as he's one of the more physically imposing forwards in the league like you just talked about. When he's engaged, that's the key word. That is the key word. When he's engaged, he can keep pace with guards and bother perimeter shots. He has even shown some rim protection capability when he's been one of the lone bigs in a small ball lineup. Although, that's something else interesting we can talk about. He is at his best, or at least the best lineup combinations, I should say, really feature him as more of a small forward, right? Playing next to two other bigger players, which in turn can help on some of those drives when some of these guys do get around him. He has at least one or two other guys that potentially funnel to who can help bother shots. I mean, you have bigs like Wendell Carter, Mo Bamba, Bull Bulls out there playing the four spot a lot of the time for the Orlando Magic lately. So if he has the right pieces in place to help him out on that end, he can be fine, which is really, that's the evaluation we all gave about him at no ceilings. It's not that he can't defend. It's not that he's physically incapable of defending, but given everything he has to do on the other side of the ball, help him out by putting the right pieces around him. And that's just one of the reasons why I wanted him to go to the Orlando Magic, right? Even though I didn't have him number one overall on my personal big board, I had him number two. I had Chet Holmgren number one. 
I love the Orlando Magic fit from the beginning because of everything he could bring to the table offensively, along with they have so much size and length and defensive skill everywhere else, they can help bring him along on that end. You and I were on the same page. I also had Chet number one and Paolo number two. And certainly the fit in Orlando has allowed Paolo to exploit all of his offensive gifts. And so before we move on to the next section, I do want to wrap up by circling back to Paolo's playmaking. And that, I think, is the biggest standout thing for me. I mean, we've seen six foot ten bruisers who can create their own shot in the post and score in isolation before. But, you know... I hate to throw the Chris Webber comparison out for anybody as a Kings fan, but, you know, there are very few bigs of his size who are also as exceptional of passers as he is. And, you know, to throw out another couple of Kings favorites, DeMarcus Cousins, DeMontis Sabonis, you know, guys who can not only put the ball in the basket at a 20-point-per-game score level, but also just generate so many good looks for their teammates as a passer. And, you know... The massive scoring is one thing for Paulo. I don't think that many draft analysts expected him to be like under 10 points a game as a scorer, right? I think pretty much everybody expected him to display the scoring touch he has. And it's not as if playmaking wasn't sort of the highlight of his package going into it, but we've already seen just in the early going with, you know, not exactly the best context around him in Orlando, right? This is probably going to be like at most a 30-win team by the end of the season. He's still just staggeringly good at creating looks for his teammates off his own offense. And one of the most important aspects of passing, Nick, that we talk about a lot at No Ceilings, is you have to be a threat to score to set up those passing windows and really be able to take advantage of them. So, yes, we talked about some of the areas in which he can improve as a jump shooter, but when you rate out in the 64th percentile on layups, you're you're awesome finisher on the basket, 97th percentile on dunks, 64th percentile on runners. We know you're able to finish around the basket. We know you're able to back dive back guys down, post them up. We know you're able to beat them on an island in isolation. That constant threat that he can always get a bucket whenever he needs it sets everything else up for everyone around him. 52nd percentile in pick and rolls, including passes. 75th percentile in isolations, including passes. 99th percentile in post-ups, including passes. Nick, no matter where this guy is on the floor, he's able to dish that ball to where it needs to go. He can hit the corner kickouts. He can pass out of double teams in the post. He's bringing the ball up the floor and quite literally initiating offense for this Orlando Magic team, who, by the way, has a few guards, has Franz Wagner, who can do some interesting things with the ball in his hands. But you have a guy in Paolo who is this 6'10", 250-pound, looks even bigger than 250 pounds, bruising forward, who is either operating out of pick and roll with another big or who is running inverted pick and rolls or he's being used as the role man himself. That versatility in his game that sets everybody else up around him, I can't stress enough how much the Orlando Magic need to appreciate when he has the ball in his hands and that that is their best avenue to success. His best lineup combinations, I'll read both of them off to you. Paolo, Bull Bull, Wendell, Franz, Terrence Ross, plus 38.1 in 36 minutes. Paolo. Wild lineup. Wild lineup. Wild lineup. And then the other one, Paolo, Mo Bamba, RJ Hampton, Caleb Houston, uh, Chumo Okeke, plus 34.8 in 11 minutes. So the biggest similarity with both of those lineups, Nick, is yes, they're absurd. They're freakishly huge and tall and funky, and I love it. But they're all lineups where we know that Paolo is going to dominate the ball. And we're seeing the results of that in efficient numbers across the board everywhere else other than jump shooting and the team's really starting to win games and 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 pick up some momentum as we move deeper into the season hopefully when he comes back Orlando's going to be ready for him to get right back to what he was doing so given that Chet Holmgren is missing the entirety of the season with an injury I don't think that there were many people who were surprised by Paulo Boncaro being number one on this list (laughs) The guy who's number two on this list might be a bit more surprising for people, but, you know, given how he's played in the early season, I don't think anybody will be all that surprised when they look at the numbers. Certainly, you know, a surprise given how he's evaluated coming in, but what we've seen from Benedict Matherin so far has been nothing short of spectacular. So, again, you know, maybe a bit of a surprise coming into the year, but I'm not all that surprised to see him at number two on your rankings so far. So, Why don't you dive in? Why do you have Benedict Matherin as the number two rookie on the first edition of the rookie rank? So I am actually a little surprised 
with the fact that I have a number two and the fact that I have to have him number two, Nick, and I'll explain why in a second, but he's played in 12 games. Hasn't started in any of them, by the way, right? So I have a guy number two. He's playing 28 minutes a night, but he's not the de facto starting wing in the lineup for the Indiana Pacers. But despite that, he's playing good minutes, like I said, at 28, almost 20 points per game, 3.9 rebounds, 2.3 assists per game, almost 46% from the field, 45% from three-point range, 83% from the free throw line. Oh, by the way, on his threes, he's taking over six triples per game, and he's knocking down 45% of them. That is ridiculous for a rookie. 17.2 PER, I mentioned the, the PER correlation with rookies earlier, and true shooting percentage, Nick, for a wing who is taking the majority of his shots 10 feet and out, 62.5 true shooting percentage. The efficiency with Matherin's game is why I've rated him number two. I will ask you, though, Nick, so greater than 75% of Matherin's scoring has been assisted on. So he's been very much an off-ball guy. We haven't seen enough of the on-ball juice yet from him that we got to see in his second year at Arizona. Hopefully we get to see more of that as the NBA season, season progresses. He's kind of falling in line with what I thought he would be in the NBA, at least early on, as a very off-ball dominant player who can cut, who can shoot, who can take advantage of defenses in that way. I didn't think we'd see a lot of the on-ball stuff. But that being said, his efficiency that his efficiency doesn't surprise you at all? I mean, of course it surprises me. But it doesn't <laughs> surprise me that he is where he is. Sure. I mean, in terms of his efficiency, I think the biggest thing for me is – First of all, the chemistry between him and Tyrese Halliburton is incredible already and depressing as a Kings fan. But, you know, hey, I'm at the point where I'm just rooting for Tyrese at this point. Not that I wasn't the moment he was traded, but that's a side point. The thing with Matherin is that last year, you know, when he was shooting 37%, I believe, off the top of my head from long range, I mean, he was the number one offensive option. He was extra, you know, he was heavily guarded at all times when he was behind the arc. And, you know, this year he's not the number one option i mean that's you know obvious to say when he's basically the sixth man for them but you know he's as you said mostly playing off the ball and mostly a lot more open than he was during his last season at arizona so it'll be interesting to see if he gets more on ball reps as the season progresses and what he does with said on ball reps but honestly i mean given the way that indiana has lined up so far this season i mean you know they've had multiple different starters at point guard due to well really off guard due to injuries. You know, they've had multiple different starters on the wing due to guys missing time. And yet they seem pretty locked into the idea that no, Ben Matherin is just going to be our first guy off the bench. And, you know, if we have to put in Aaron Neesmith to play like spot minutes as a starting forward, we'll do that. You know, if we're putting in Andrew Nemhard as a starter, you know, sort of as an off guard slash point guard hybrid alongside Tyrese Halberton, we'll do that. But it seems pretty clear to me that, Indiana is very happy with where Benedict Matherin is getting his offense from. And that makes me inclined to believe that a, they're going to leave him out of the starting lineup for at least a little while longer and b, more to the point. I don't think he's going to get as many on ball reps as maybe we would have hoped. But the flip side of that is when you have the ball in Tyrese Halliburton's hands, you're going to be doing just fine anyway. So I'm not sure they even want to take the ball out of his hands, especially given how exceptional he's been as a mostly off ball player so far. And really, the, the secret sauce to Matherin's game so far has been the transition game. He rates out in the 86th percentile as a transition scorer. You can look at all these other different types of, uh, of plays where he's coming off movement. He rates out very high on dribble jumpers. Yes, he can, he can participate in the catch-and-shoot game. He rates out in the 67th percentile on catch-and-shoot jumpers. But anything that gets him going off movement or on the break, that's where he's suited best. And that also really plays itself out in the lineup combinations. There's four lineup combinations this year that are a plus 25 or higher, all the way up to a plus 45 in the minutes he's played. The lineup composition is, is essentially with a lot of guys who we know like to move on the break. There's small ball lineups where Isaiah Jackson is the big man, where O'Shea Brissett uh, is, is the four man, or Chris Duarte is the four man. When they get Matherin on the move away from the ball and they can set him up for easy actions – coming off screens, uh, out in transition. He is such an effective scorer in those play types to where 
you look and go, maybe he doesn't need to have the ball in his hands. Maybe we can have the offense dominated by Tyrese Halliburton. Maybe we can throw Andrew Nembhard in there like he talked about. TJ McConnell has still been as steady of a point guard as they come for the Indiana Pacers. But the fact that he has that many lineup combinations as a rookie that are yielding plus results, that speaks volumes to the type of player that he is and that he can fit in a lot of different situations right now. And I'm sure he'll be able to fit much better in some of the other lineups as his career progresses which really comes back to these more half-court dominated lineups with Miles Turner at the center. He hasn't been nearly as effective in, but that's because he hasn't been that great finishing around the basket, which can be a surprise for some. He's a high-flying guy. He can definitely jam the ball home, but 30th percentile in at-rim finishing, 29th percentile in layups, that's not going to get it done. So that's probably the biggest reason why he hasn't dominated the ball more, but the fact that he still found so many other ways to be effective on the offensive side of the ball, I think that should be very encouraging for Indiana Pacer fans. I'm really glad that you brought up the lineup versatility because that is something that I talk about all the time on this podcast. Is the Oh, I know you do. If you have multiple different avenues to finding your way into a rotation, then that just means that there are going to be, you know, more opportunities for you to succeed, more opportunities for you to show the coach why he should be putting you out there more. And, you know, that's the thing with Benedict Matherin, as you mentioned, the fact that he's not just someone who, okay, he's strictly a three and you throw him into lineups only as someone who's going to be an off ball catch and shoot threat. And then, you know, have him guard threes on the other end with Matherin, there are multiple different lineup constructions that work around him. There are multiple different lineup constructions that, you know, aren't, you know, sort of geared around him that given his off ball strengths, he can find a way to fit into those lineups and still contribute. And, you know, even though he's not starting, he is averaging almost 30 minutes a game. And that's because there are so many different lineup constructions, which makes sense with Benedict Matherin as one of the five guys out there on the floor. And you can rattle off a number of 20 plus point performances for Matherin as well. It's one thing for Paolo to be scoring at the rate as he is, Nick, because he has the ball in his hand so often because there are a number of different isolation style play types that he can excel in. He can take his man off the bounce. He can play a little bit of that bully ball. Matherin's not doing any of that. He is almost exclusively an off-ball player, yet he had a game with 32 points against the Brooklyn Nets. Yet he had a 23-point game against the Miami Heat, games where he's been effective on both sides of the ball to an extent, really obviously more dominated by his offense, but he's been so incredibly efficient from the field and particularly from three-point range. I just, I don't recall many off-ball weapons like him being able to generate offense to the extent that he is. I think that makes him a special player in his own right. And somebody might say, well, if he's not doing this, this, and that, why do you have him number two on your rank? it's because the efficiency rate at which he's doing his job and at which he's accepted doing his job, it speaks volumes to me when you are willing to come in and just do whatever needs to be done to help your team win games. So before we wrap up on Matherin, we do at least have to touch on the defense briefly. Now the defense has been not great, but my thought process on this is Similar to my thought process on Paulo, albeit with quite a few more reservations in Matherin's case, which is pretty much all rookies struggle on the defensive end. Very few rookies are Davion Mitchell, where they come into the league and they're (laughs) immediately one of the best on-ball defenders in basketball. And with Matherin, I mean, again, it goes back to he has the physical tools, right? He's 6'7", you know, 215 pounds, solid frame, good wingspan, moves well laterally, you know, has bounce as a vertical athlete. You know, he has the physical tools that he needs, but pretty much every rookie struggles to figure out where to be on the defensive end. And, you know, (laughs) if you have Tyrese Halliburton on your team, he's going to help you to figure out where you're supposed to be. If you have Buddy Heald on your team, he's going to do the exact opposite. So we'll see what the influences are on Ben Matherin's game defensively. But despite that shot at Buddy Heald, which was entirely unnecessary, (laughs) but I took anyway, I think that, Ben Matherin's athletic tools will enable him to figure it out enough on the defensive end to the point where he's at least going to be solid. But I mean, pretty much all rookies struggle with the awareness of where they're supposed to be on the defensive end. And for me, that's been the biggest concern with Matherin. I'm not worried about his ability to keep up in terms of, you know, being able to match foot speed with even the quickest of NBA wings. I think he'll be fine. You know, I'm not sure you want him guarding water bug point guard types, but 
you know, if you stick him on the wing, I think as a 2-3 defender in the long term, I think he's going to be average, if not an above average defender. But that is mostly, if not entirely, based on the physical tools because the awareness has been spotty, to say the least. And it, it always takes young players, Nick, so much time to adjust to the pure speed of the NBA game, right? Shorter shot clock. You talk about every single athlete on the floor was probably the best athlete or one of the best athletes on their college team. So you're talking about whittling out the best of the best from college, from all over the world, and you're stuffing them on one court. Now you're expecting Benedict Matherin to play up to a level defensively to where he can be like a Swiss army knife and, and guard all of these different players at these different positional groups, just like that at the drop of a hat. It's not going to happen that quick for him. And, and the other thing too, you mentioned, I, I would agree with you. I'm not too worried about the physical aspect to his game, but think about how often Benedict Matherin probably had to guard somebody who was smaller or I mean, who was bigger than him as often at the college level or at the high school level. He's been a guy who's been so used to just being the biggest, tallest, longest player on the floor more often than not to where he hasn't been asked to do some of the same things he's going to have to do defensively at the NBA level, switching on the bigger wings and bigger forwards, right? Those things, along with adjusting to the speed of the game, getting used to the craftiness that some of these guards have. You mentioned the water bug guard types. It's not just their speed and their quickness. It's also what they can do with the ball in their hands to, to manipulate screens, to throw guys off with their eyes. These are the lessons that young wings in particular have to learn in the NBA to be, be able to keep up on the defensive end and be what NBA teams want them to be, which is I want three guys on the floor other than my point guard and my center who can guard two through four, no matter the circumstance, because I want to be able to switch everything depending on the coverage that needs to be played. It's just going to take math and time to adjust something like that. I'm shocked that we got an It Takes Time reference here on the first edition of the Oh, Rucker. shout out to Tyler Rucker. It just takes time. All right, so we are going to go a bit more rapid fire through the three through 10 prospects on the first edition of the rookie rank. And we're going to start, of course, with Jaden Ivey, who is third on the rookie ranking, was third on my big board last year. That's looking like a pretty good call so far. Yes, and it is. With, with Jaden Ivey, I mean, I bought into his shooting based on his high school film. I thought that his first season at Purdue was an outlier where he shot sub 30% from deep. And... <laughs> After his sophomore season at Purdue and his first few games in the NBA, it looks like he's, you know, around a mid-30s percent three-point shooter. There were some who had questions about the shot. I was not one of them. There was nobody who had any questions about Jaden Ivey's athletic tools. And that's, you know, the first thing that pops when you see him on the screen is even going from college basketball to the NBA level, which is a severe jump in athleticism. Jaden Ivey is still one of the best athletes at the NBA level, just as he was at the college level. And that's really been a huge driving factor in why he's been as successful as he has been early on for the Detroit Pistons. And if anybody wanted to make an argument that Jaden Ivey could be number two in these rankings, I wouldn't stop you. Because again, 13 games played, 13 games started, 31.4 minutes per game, 16 points per game, five rebounds, almost four assists, 45% from the field, 35% from the three-point line, as you mentioned, 14.9 PER and a 54.4 true shooting percentage. Nick, I'd say that all those numbers are fantastic for any rookie guard, but really one who is expected to carry the load offensively along with Cade Cunningham. They're still figuring out how to play off one another. I think they are doing a good job of that though. And the speed that Ivy has, we knew it would be a killer. It was certainly a killer at the college level. It's continuing to be a killer in the NBA. It's been able to set up more of his passing though. And Shout out to, to Bryce from Motor City Hoops, who I saw a tweet out last night that Ivy's passing was uh, underrated and slept on a little bit during the draft process. Nick, I don't think that you and I or anybody in no ceiling slept on it. I think we evaluated it perfectly to where he may not be an advanced passer, right? He may not be this guy who's going to break down the defense and read multiple levels at a, in a split second and make all of these crazy advanced reads. But he can make basic pick and roll passes. He can make the necessary extra pass or the hit ahead pass and transition. He can do all the things that you want him to do as a guard, in my opinion. And I think that's only been better accentuated at the NBA level because he's playing in a more pick and roll style game with a lot more open space around him. So that when he gets downhill, he has a, 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 a little bit more time to process where he needs to kick the ball out to next right? It's not two guys 
or, or three guys, I should say, in the Big Ten for, for crying out loud, just completely dominating the paint and walling them off. And then he has to kind of try and back up or figure out where the ball needs to go next. It's, it's a lot more one-on-one style play with guys switching those ball screens. He's able to get and, and beat that next man, and then he's able to make that next pass if the defense comes over and rotates to, to try and, and wall him off. But really, I think more of his passing has been able to come to light at the NBA level, and a lot of the scoring punch has also come along too. Up next at number four, a.k.a. three spots too low on the first edition of the rookie rank, Sacramento Kings forward Keegan Murray. And Keegan had an excellent start to the season, and then he had a really unfortunate family issue. His grandmother suffered a stroke in the game they played against the Charlotte Hornets, and Keegan has clearly struggled with that, which any human being with a heart would in that kind of situation. But even though he had a really strong start to the year, he's certainly played very well in the Kings' last performance against the Golden State Warriors, putting up 21 points in that game. And really the thing with Keegan Murray is he's been very similar to what we saw from him in Summer League, which is, you know, he can be pretty quiet at times. He can disappear, and then he'll get going, knock down a couple three-pointers, have a hot stretch, and then you look up at the scoreboard and you realize, oh my God, he has 16 points in the third (laughs) quarter. And that's, I think, really been the Keegan Murray story so far this season. You know, he's had quiet stretches. He's had stretches where, you know, multiple possessions, he doesn't get to touch the ball on the offensive end. And then he'll knock down a couple shots, get going, pour in some points in a hurry, and just make smart decisions with the basketball in his hands every time. So I am very happy that the Kings have Keegan Murray. I went through the Keegan Murray dilemma with Tyler Rucker last season before the draft, and I think that's a debate that will be Debated for many years to come, but certainly at this point, Keegan Murray has had a very strong start to the season, earned his way into the starting lineup, and don't think he's going to be leaving the Kings starting lineup anytime soon. 32 minutes a night, 13 points per game, efficient shooting splits, no matter where you want to look on the floor, Nick, I got to read you these. So obviously the the wonderful basketball reference provides shooting split breakdowns for every area on the floor. So field goal percentage by distance, zero to three feet, 81%. That's pretty good around the basket. 3 to 10 feet, 44, 44.4%, 10 to 16 feet, 42.9, 16 all the way out to just inside the three-point line, 40%, and on three-point shots, 38.6%. Name me the spot on the floor where he isn't able to do something. And oh, by the way, yeah, he may be more of an off-ball player like we projected in those ceilings, but his awareness and his ability to get to the right spots on the floor to take advantage of every single defensive lapse that's in front of him That's why we love Keegan Murray so much. He is a technician, and he's showing a lot of that efficiency on the offensive side of the ball. Now, Nick, you and Metcalf, you guys are big defensive guys. He hasn't been good defensively. I think that's going to turn itself around at some point, like we talk about with all of these young players. But when you have an off-ball threat like him who has a lightning-quick release off the catch, he positions himself incredibly well in every other play type. He takes advantage of those lapses. He can cut to the basket, get those back doors. There are just so many different ways, similar to Ben Mather, you can use him. Why wouldn't you want a guy like that in your starting lineup? So you mentioned it with his awareness on the offensive end, which is exactly why I'm not worried about his defense in the longer term. He already has an excellent understanding of where he's supposed to be on the floor at all times. Sometimes his feet don't quite match up to his brain in terms of where he knows (laughs) that he needs to be. And those are the occasions where you see him get back cut or you see him get lost on a switch. But for me, I mean, he's quick enough that he can keep in front of most forwards if he knows you know, where to be. He's not the greatest athlete in the world, but I think he's good enough. And in terms of his awareness on the offensive end, you know, sometimes players have really great awareness on one end of the floor and not the other end of the floor. But that's not what I saw from the Iowa tape for Keegan Murray. I think it's really just what you mentioned earlier with you know, the speed of the game at the NBA level is just so much higher than the speed of the game at the college level. And once he starts getting more used to that, I think that by year three in the NBA, Keegan Murray is an average defender, maybe even an above average defender or better. But I would be shocked if we get to year three or four of Keegan Murray in the NBA and he is a serious minus on the defensive end. No, I would agree wholeheartedly, 100%. I think Keegan Murray, you got to buy into him being a two-way player sooner rather than later in his NBA career, I think the Kings made the right pick so far at four overall. Up next at number five overall, we have Shaden Sharp, who was 
probably the biggest enigma in the top 10 heading into the season. And so far, what we've seen from Shaden Sharp has been almost all positive, which, you know, is really great to see, especially given that he had the least recent basketball playing experience of anybody inside the top 10. So Shaden Sharp, first of all, Shout out to our own Corey Tulliba, who already did a YouTube breakdown on Mr. Shane Sharp and talked about why he thinks he's already been a draft steal. If you have not checked out his video, you can certainly find the link to his YouTube channel in his bio over on Twitter, the NBA Draft Dude. Please go watch that video, breaking down a lot of his offensive game. But Nick, we haven't talked about defense as a real strong suit for any of these guys. I think it actually has been a little bit with Shane Sharp. He's rated out in the 50th percentile in terms of total defense. So doing that... As a teenager, that's a fascinating development for the Portland Trailblazers. And I got to be honest, Nick, when I watched his high school tape, I was horrified by some of the defense that I saw. But it looks like he's giving much better effort on the floor. He's actually using the physical tools that God God gave to him. He's six foot six, has a long wingspan, really quick feet. And he's been just giving a much better effort at actually contesting guys and stopping guys from getting some of those easy shots. And his defense has obviously stood out to me. His offense, another one of these guys who has embraced an off-ball role, right, being a catch-and-shoot guy, his cutting game along the baseline, Nick, that is one of my favorite aspects of his game. It's something that I wish prospects like him would embrace more. When you are that quick and that much of a threat to get downhill when you have one of those elite first steps, Use it in different ways, right? It's it's Scoring is not just dominating the ball, dribble, 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 dribble in the air out of it and eventually settling for a step-back jump shot. We're not seeing Shaden Sharp do that. He's taking and making much better shots than he was at the high school level. That says to me he's responding well to the right coaching. That means he's allowing himself to be coached. And again, similar to Matherin, similar to Ivy, similar to Keegan, He's just finding ways where he can impact the game and help his team win games. And that's why the Blazers have been, or at least one of the reasons why the Blazers have been one of the better teams in the West so far. I fully expected Shaden Sharp to be a gunner and someone who did not pay attention. At so all did I. Defense. <laughs> and so, yeah, I'm totally with you. The fact that he's been average in his first few games as a rookie on the defensive end is astounding given the usual level of defense that we yep. see from rookie players in the NBA and, you know, particularly for him as a teenager who basically didn't play at all last season, it's staggering and incredibly impressive and really speaks well to his long-term projection. But speaking of defense and long-term projection, I think probably the most surprising ranking on this list for me was the guy that you have at number six. You put Jabari Smith Jr. of the Houston Rockets at sixth overall, and he was someone who, as you mentioned in the article, has gone through some serious shooting slumps, including yep. Summer League and his first few games in the NBA. And so if you look at the numbers, it's really disappointing and vaguely upsetting. The defense that we expected from him coming out of college has been good, but I'm not quite sure I would say that I would put him at sixth overall, given his offensive struggles so far. But Nathan, this is your ranking. This is your list. So... Why don't you explain yourself? Why do you have Jabari Smith Jr. as the sixth player on the rookie rank to start the season? Positive, Nick. Positivity, at least in this first edition, I'm trying to give an A for effort. That's what I'm really trying to do here. So he's played in 12 games. He started in all 12 of those games, almost 30 minutes a night. So he's playing a a pretty heavy role when compared to some of his other rookie peers, still averaging 10 points per game, almost seven rebounds. Yeah, the shooting, look, I got no advanced metrics to throw out to you or any synergy percentile rankings to where I'm going to make anybody feel better about where his shot's at right now. But I don't think he's taking a ton of bad shots. I don't think he's forcing too many outside looks. I think the issues that we talked about before the draft where he was not going to be one of those guys who can create off the dribble and get downhill and finish around the basket at a high level Those concerns have all reared their ugly heads at the worst possible time, right away in his NBA rookie season. I understand that 100%, but I still don't expect him to only have a 43.8 true shooting percentage. 
by the end of the year. Eventually, he's going to break out of a lot of these slumps. And you talked about some of the defense. The defense has been more often than not a positive for him. He's still one of the most versatile players we have in this draft class at six foot ten, able to guard two through four. Has really been matching up at the five spot a, a good amount for the Houston Rockets, which I think is an interesting wrinkle in some of what they've been trying to do at that spot, kind of mixed mismatching, whether it's Jabari Smith at the center spot, whether they're bringing Alper and Shengun off the bench. No, maybe we actually need to start Alper and Shengun because of how good he's been offensively, myself included. Like, why isn't that man starting? But that that's a question for another day. The point I'm trying to make about Jabari is if he keeps struggling, I will boot him down these rankings by the next time you and I have one of these conversations. I'm trying to not let him get too far away from the top five because I do think he's had, he's been asked to play a role very similar to those five guys ahead of him to justify his number three draft stock. It hasn't been great, but I kind of want to see more from him before I just say, no, you aren't one of the 10 best rookies in your class. You're right. You did say be positive. So I will say that's I right. Think that- on the defensive end, I think he's been more plus than minus. And, you know, again, it's something that we've repeated numerous times on this episode, and I'm sure we will repeat numerous times on subsequent episodes. Almost all rookies are really bad at defense. So the fact that Jabari Smith is neutral to positive as a defender already is not exactly far off from what anybody projected, but, you know, has to be mentioned as a positive sign for him that he's already, you know, at minimum a defensive neutral which is a level that most rookies don't ever get to but let's now move down the line to someone else who's actually been I think really impressive on the defensive end Jalen Duran of the Detroit Pistons and when we did the no ceilings NBA draft show for the 2022 NBA draft we basically all lost our minds at the fact that Jalen Duran ended up going to the Detroit Pistons at 13 and you know, he's already got a teammate higher up on this list, but for Duran, I think really the important notes to hammer are that he's played a smaller role minutes-wise than everybody ahead of him on this ladder, but he has been exceptionally productive in those minutes. You mentioned we all lost our minds, Nick. I, I, I'm still trying to find the rest of mine that has <laughs> still been trying to figure out how those picks ended up training hands so many times where he ended up on the Pistons, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah, Jalen Duran. Holy crap, man. 11 games played, 21 minutes a night, but six and a half points per game, 7.4 rebounds, 55% from the field, a 14 player efficiency rating and a 53.4 true shooting percentage, a 14 very close to league average PER. You might look at some of his numbers offensively and go, he's not really putting up that many points per game. He's not always dominating from the floor. What is he doing that's really dragging up that player efficiency rating? You mentioned one of them, the defense. He rates out of the 95th percentile in terms of total defense. I get he's not playing a large role yet for the Detroit Pistons, but still in any of the minutes he's been on the floor, I would not expect to see a number anywhere close to there. And a lot of that's propped up by his rebounding. Nick, he's been a rebounding machine. 12.4 rebounds per 36 minutes. A lot of his production, when you rate it out on a per 36 minutes basis, you look at his rookie season, you look at Andre Drummond's rookie season, very similar numbers. And I get that everyone wants to give Andre Drummond crap later on in his career. You know what? When that guy was with the Pistons in his first few years, everybody was sitting around thinking, is this one of the next star centers that we're going to be able to watch in the NBA for years to come? And you look at what Duran's doing, protecting the basket, really putting a lid on it in the drop coverage, showing a, a little bit of that defensive versatility. What I want to see more with Jalen Duran is, and I wrote about this in the article, I want to see him and Beef Stew share the court more. I love when Beef Stew is bombing threes. I love when Duran's the one guy able to, to, to sort of switch out a little bit. I want to see more of those funky lineups with Duran, but nevertheless, regardless of whether he's playing next to Isaiah Stewart, whether it's Boyan Bogdanovich, he has been efficient. And when he has two guards who can make those lob passes and Cade and Ivy on the floor with him, either at the same time or he's playing with one of those guys, that also makes his job on offense a lot easier. So give me the two-way impact that Jalen Duran showed so far. 
I got to say, it is hilarious that the biggest concerns about Jalen Duran headed into the draft were his motor and his willing to put it, willingness to put in the effort on the defensive end. And what we've seen from him through the first few games is almost the exact opposite. The exact opposite. Yep. Yep. He, he, has, he has certainly turned some of those notions around. It, it is tough, though, Nick. I mean, what is it? Some, some of these guys just get bored at the high school level when they're this talented and they can do all of these things and they just think may, may, maybe I can coast on some of these possessions. We don't always see the constant effort, but then when we get to the NBA, when they get coaching from uh, Dwayne Casey, who wants the most effort out of him on a night-to-night basis, it's funny how that can turn around. And when that is turned around, his physical gifts, his athleticism, being arguably the best athlete at the center position in the draft, it's amazing what can happen when he is engaged at all times. So up next at number eight, we have another spectacularly efficient small minutes center. And shout out to Tyler Metcalf. His favorite prospect of all time is showing up at number eight on the rookie rank. Walker Kessler, who has been one of the more surprising players on probably, no, not probably, the most surprising team of the young season, the spectacular Utah Jazz, which is definitely not something that anyone projected heading into the season, given that, you know, most places expected them to be in the 20 win range and the absolute tank for Victor Wembanyama range. So Walker Kessler has been, again, one of the surprising good stories, surprising positive stories of the young season for the surprise team of the young season in the NBA. I could have had Walker Kessler higher. Well, in in this rank, 100% simply based on the fact alone that he is legitimately helping his team win games. He, yes, he's only playing 15 minutes a night, but when he's in there, his efficiency rating, his effectiveness have been off the charts for rookie big man. First of all, and I wrote this specifically, did anyone out there have Walker Kessler as the leading rookie candidate to have the highest PER rating amongst his peers through this part of the regular season? No. You, you, I think you, his mom might have. That's about it, though. Well, I can tell you I, I didn't expect that to happen, but yet it actually has a 20 20- 0.7 player efficiency rating, 65 point runcher shooting percentage. Oh, by the way, he's putting up all the the, the crazy block numbers that we were accustomed to for, uh, seeing from him in college because he's doing the exact same thing. So his style of blocking shots is not the the weak side rim protection or coming over and helping or getting the chase down block and transition. It is having somebody funneled into him, them trying to play him at his body, and he just says, "No, screw this." I'm going to put two hands up and I'm going to swat your shot away no matter what you try to do against me. And he is continuing to provide that level of rim protection for the Utah Jazz while also being an incredibly efficient finisher around the basket. He isn't a leaper. He's not a gazelle running up and down the floor, but he just knows how to play the game. And Nick, there were a lot of debates about him and Mark Williams last year. I had Mark Williams as the better prospect. I would still have Mark Williams as the better prospect, but yep. there was a time when I had Walker Kessler as the number one big after Jalen Duren on my personal big board. I don't know, man. Some of these numbers, 13.3 points per game, 12.9 rebounds per 36, and 9.2 block percentage. Maybe... Maybe we were wrong about that. Maybe a, a little bit. I don't know. It, it's early, but I could have Walker Kessler higher. I'm I'm very happy with where he is in his rookie year so far. The block percentage is an absurdity, and that was almost a direct translation from his last season at Auburn, where he was for most of the year on track to set the block percentage record in college basketball. Dude, he and, just swallows yeah. guys whole, man. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's amazing. amazing. So someone else who definitely is a defense-first kind of player up next, Jeremy Sohan for the San Antonio Spurs. And the raw box score numbers don't look as pretty as some of the guys ahead of him. But as you mentioned in the article, first of all, for any rookie to be earning playing time from Greg Popovich is a statement in and of itself. And secondly, I mean, on the defensive end, you know, again, there aren't many rookies who are able to provide positive impact on the defensive end. But so far with Sohan, he's been really helpful as, you know, a switch kind of big, someone who you can rely on on the perimeter in short spurts. And again, you know, Greg Popovich knows 10,000 times more about basketball than I ever will. He's forgotten 10,000 times more about basketball than I ever will. And his willingness to put Jeremy Sohan out there as a defensive first piece for the Spurs lineup already in his rookie career is enough of a statement, but you know, combine that with the tape where he shows some of the same flashes that he showed at Baylor. And, 
you know, it makes sense that even though maybe the raw box score numbers aren't as impressive, he definitely, I think, is a worthy addition to the rookie rank at number nine overall. He is. And and there, like, yeah, like you said, there have certainly been some ups and downs defensively. He doesn't rate out well on that end still by the numbers, but he's doing enough good things to where Popovich is playing him 24 minutes a night and he's still producing at a level to where he can hold on to one of those starting spots. I think it comes from they don't really have another player like him to be able to deploy on the roster, somebody who can play the switchable brand of defense that the NBA has fallen so much in love with these days, while also being a guy who can handle the rock both in transition and now he's bringing the ball to the floor, doing it in the half court. Did, did, did I see some takes on social media last night? Point Sohan? Was Point Sohan coming out to play against the Golden State Warriors? I don't know. Didn't get to watch that game last night. But nevertheless, what I have seen on some of the tape that I have been able to watch. He's he's decent finishing around the basket. He can handle the ball in transition. He's already had some really nice throwdown dunks. Yeah, the jump shot's still a ways to go, but he's another one of these guys who he knows where to be on the floor at all times, either with the ball in his hands or without the ball in his hands. More of the defensive awareness, particularly off the ball, still needs to come around for him. But what he can provide on the ball, he is at least a pest. He is still incredibly competitive. He uses his length, his timing, his anticipation very well to challenge shots, particularly perimeter shots. I still like a lot of what I've seen from Jeremy Sohan, and I think the more that San Antonio gets to experiment with some of these lineups to where he's handling the ball more and more and more, that's just going to set up more of the passing flashes that we saw from him at Baylor that you talked about in the second half of the scouting cycle. And I'm still really intrigued to see more of what he can provide from a versatility standpoint for one of the more versatile teams that we've seen so far in terms of lineup combinations in the NBA with the San Antonio Spurs. Speaking of versatile forwards, let's close out the top 10 with someone who you've already done a number of mea culpas on, despite (laughs) the fact that he's only a few games into his rookie season. Tari Eason, who was one of the standouts to all of us on the No Ceilings team at Summer League in July, and someone who has carried over a lot of those positives to his first few games in the NBA. Now, Something very important that you mentioned up top is that he's been a bit more of a gambler defensively at the NBA level than he was in summer league. And that was, I think, one of the things that stood out most positively to you in particular about his summer league performances. That being said, again, we're trying to be positive here. And, you know, his shooting has looked much better than it did in college. And if he continues to shoot like that, that is going to be a huge part of him filling in as a versatile forward, him being able to fit in a lot of different lineup constructions. So, you know, maybe a few more gambles than we would have liked, but overall, very strong start for Tari Eason, and that's why he's number 10 on the rookie ranking, despite being a mid-teens pick, 17th pick overall in the 2022 NBA draft. He, he's he been a better shooter in some respects than a finisher around the basket, which might be surprising for some to hear on the offensive end, given how He is still being incredibly effective on the floor in 18 minutes a night, 8.3 points per game, 4.9 rebounds, 44% from three-point range, and 79% from the line. He's still walking into an 18-player efficiency rating. And my first sentence in the section for Tari Eason, Nick, you'll love this one. Death, taxes, and Tari Eason finding a way to have a good PER off the bench. Because that's what he did at LSU. Every single game he was coming off the bench and walking into a 20 and 10 or or some crazy stat line of a night impacting the game with the ball, without the ball. The shooting, like I said, it has been a bright spot for him. I do want to call out some of the rim finishing numbers, though, Nick, because a lot of the percentiles, he, he rates out in the 25th percentile in scoring and transition offense, 5th percentile on layups. That is not the East in the numbers foretold would set foot into the league. But I did call a lot of that out last year during the scouting cycle where I would see oh, aren't you special. <laughs> I, I got to toot my own horn every once in a while, Nick, come on. You got to <laughs> yeah, give a dog course, bone every course. once in a while. What I saw though was interesting because you would look at these really high two point numbers and you'd go, okay, He's, he's a really tall, really long athletic forward. He has the vertical pop. He can finish around guys. He can finish over guys. These numbers check out. You go back and watch a lot of the clips, and he's, he's, doing a, he's having a lot of these makes on uncontested looks at the rim. When he got in traffic last year, when it was more about touch and finishing through guys than it was getting around them or going over them, he struggled. And we're seeing that still in the NBA. 
I think that eventually is going to course correct itself. I would expect some of the shooting to actually dip down a little bit and to see more of the at-rim finishing go in the complete opposite direction. And I would love for the gambling man to take a few less gambles on the defensive side of the ball. But I still think he's the best wing slash combo forward this team has on the roster by the all-star break. I think he should be starting for the Houston Rockets again. Houston, KPJ, Jalen Green, Tari Eason, Jabari Smith, Alperin Shengun. Can we please see what that starting lineup looks like for an extended number of games, please? I know I'm speaking for Rockets fans out there. Let's just see it. But I'm still highly intrigued with Tari Eason. You mentioned at the top, I've already walked back some of my Tari Eason criticism that I had for him before the draft, which I still had a top 20 grade on him. It's not like I hated the guy. I still valued him. But for him to already have one of the 10 top spots in my rookie rank, we'll see whether he goes up, down, maintains it. We'll see what happens. All right, so before we wrap things up today, let's just briefly go through the honorable mentions, starting with Andrew Nemhard for the Indiana Pacers. 42-40-100 shooting splits, 2.5 rebounds per game, 3.5 assists per game, 6.5 points per game. You did your mea culpa on Tari Eason. I need to do a mea culpa on Andrew Nemhard. I did not think of him as a top-of-the-second-round type pick. I'm not sure, to be entirely honest, I had him in my top 50 by the end of last season, and he's already shown that he can be a really solid backup point guard. He's even started a couple of games alongside Tyrese Halliburton to, as we mentioned earlier, allow Benedict Matherin to be coming off the bench for most of the season. But Andrew Nemhard has been very solid and very dependable. And I was wrong about him. I should have had him rated higher. Some of the best lineup combinations for the Pacers do involve both Halliburton and Andrew Nemhard alongside each other. Like you talked about Nick consummate backup point guard, doing all the right things, shooting incredibly efficient from the floor, getting others involved, not being a complete loss defensively on that side of the ball either. He is absolutely a candidate to come into the next rookie rank. Up next, Marjan Bochamp of the Milwaukee Bucks. I'm very happy that I had a first-round grade on him heading into the draft. That looks like it's going to come through, in all honesty. He just put up a 20-point game in his last performance. Three-point shooting, not all that great, but he has been taking most of his shots from there as more of a floor-spacing guy, so hopefully that number trends up. But even without that, I mean, nearly four rebounds a game, seven and a half points per game, even started a few games for Milwaukee. He's been very impressive so far, and I definitely think he earned his place in the honorable mentions on this list. And in a few weeks, you know, when you do the next one, I think there's every chance that he could go up even further in these rankings. I would agree 100%. I've already seen some clips from some of the recent Bucks games where he's starting to hit some of those tough jump shots, Nick. I think the jumper's going to finally start coming around more for him. It was one of the things I actually liked about him as far as improvements go heading into the draft. And I also mentioned it before when we talked about grades, draft grades. Marjan Beauchamp, transition wing, going to the Milwaukee Bucks. What do they do best offensively and defensively? Playing in transition. Perfect marriage. I like his fit long-term with the Bucks. Up next, Jalen Williams, J-Dub, friend of no ceilings, friend of the program. He has started a few games for OKC. He's been absurdly efficient inside the arc, just under 70% shooting inside ridiculous. the arc, which is astounding for a center, even more ridiculous for a 6'6 wing. The three-point shooting has not quite been there, but it's such a small sample size at this point. I fully expect, given the kind of shooter that Jalen Williams has been, that he will correct that number and certainly dip into the 30s, I think, three-point percentage-wise by the end of the year. But even so, he's already started a few games. He's filling a ton of gaps for this Thunder team. He's been ridiculously efficient inside the arc. So definitely well-deserved place for him. And again, someone who might be higher or much higher by the time you do the next edition of these rankings. Absolutely. They're still, they're still trying to find the, the best place for him within the lineup. They're still trying to find the best role for him. But when he has been in the lineup, when he has played minutes, he's done a little bit of everything, but shoot the basketball like you talked about, Nick. We've seen some of the defensive versatility. We've seen some of the on-ball playmaking. We knew watching him at Summer League and, and previously at college, he was going to be a real threat off the ball when it came to player movement, cutting actions. He does a little bit of everything. He's one of the more versatile rookies that we have in this class, and I would fully expect to be talking about him more in the next edition of this podcast. Speaking of one of the more versatile players in this rookie class, up next, Jake Laravia for the Memphis Grizzlies, who has been 
taking two thirds of his shots from three point range, and that's been working out pretty well. But he's making them forty two percent of the shots. It, well, that's the point is he's been taking most of his attempts from out there, and he's been hitting them five and a half points per game, three and a half rebounds per game, little under an assist per game. He's someone who, you know, again, just fills a ton of gaps for a team and has been doing that so far for the Memphis Grizzlies. And that three-point shooting is just huge and clearly something that's going to continue to drive his value going forward. A six-foot-eight sharpshooter who can create his shots with the ball, without the ball. More of what Memphis Grizzlies need, need, which is perimeter shooting. I would fully expect him to keep playing a role for this Memphis Grizzlies team. Would not shock me in the slightest if he starts getting more minutes than than even what he is right now. I know there was a few games where he's had 29 minutes, 24 minutes. We're starting to see more of that trend in the upward direction versus the 12 to 15 minutes per game nights. Expect that to keep going that way. And who knows, maybe Jake LaRavia could end up higher in the next edition of the ranking. And finally, to close things out, David Roddy, also of the Memphis Grizzlies, probably the most surprising first-round pick of last year's draft, certainly in my mind, the most surprising first-round pick of last year's draft. And I'm not quite as ready to do the mea culpa that I already did for Andrew Nemhard with David Roddy, given that he's not exactly been all that efficient shooting-wise. But, you know, similarly to LaRavia, he's someone who can fill a lot of gaps for this Memphis team and... You know, he's already at the point where he's averaging 18 minutes a game and is a crucial part of their rotation. He's been a little too up and down, Nick, for me to put him anywhere other than an honorable mention spot. But the fact that he is on this list, being one of the most unique prospects that we had in this draft class, six foot six, 255 pounds, a legitimate shooter, which is really what the Memphis Grizzlies are playing him minutes for. They're not playing him for his defense. They're not playing him for his playmaking. They're playing him because he can shoot the rock after he catches it. And he's certainly done that in a few games. We will keep monitoring what David Roddy brings to the table for Memphis's bench rotation. All right. That is going to wrap things up for our first volume of the rookie rank podcast this season. Nathan, go ahead and give us some plugs. Tell everybody where to find you, where to check out your work. Obviously you should read the accompanying rookie rank piece that goes along with this podcast, but throw out any other plugs you got. Anything I write, you can find it on NoSillingsNBA.com, including Rookie Rank Volume 1. Please go check that out on our Substack and make sure you're subscribed to NoSillingsNBA.com. You can follow me on Twitter at DraftDeeper, and you can also catch the DraftDeeper podcast new this year, just like Nick, right here on the No Sillings NBA feed. It is DraftDeeper Mondays. Myself, Maxwell, Steven, we're always putting out a new podcast episode every Monday. And you can also find my morning dunk column, Every single Monday. Mondays are with me at No Ceilings. If you wanted somebody else on a Monday, guess what? You get to start your week with me anyway. I don't know what else to tell you, but we we have fun on Draft Deeper. And hopefully I brought some of that fun to Nick's Deep Dives podcast tonight. So thanks for having me on, buddy. Wow, that was like a 25 PER of plug rate efficiency. That was that was well done. You got through all of those real fast. <laughs> I try, man. I, I I have a lot of practice, my friend. I have a lot of practice. I'm sure you do. All right. As he said, he is Nathan Gribble. You can find him on Twitter at DraftDeeper, and you can find his work on the No Ceilings NBA website. You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N for as long as Twitter continues to exist, which, you know, we'll hold <laughs> on that one. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. But again, you can find all of my written work on NoCeilingsNBA.com. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. That's especially huge for us, even bigger than usual, because we have recently headed over to having this podcast five days a week. So five days a week of No Ceilings NBA podcast in your feeds. If you've been enjoying that, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review. And if you have any feedback about this podcast, you can feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email, nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.